It's 1937. Abel Maripol has an image in his mind that he hasn't been able to get rid of. A few years prior, he saw a photograph of two young colored men hanging from a tree, and it's still haunting him. A poet when he isn't teaching English, Maripol knows that he needs to put pen to paper and write down what is haunting him. He needs to get the horrible image out of his mind and onto paper. When he is content, the poem is less than 100 words long, 97 to be precise, but those 97 words will become the lyrics to one of the most important songs in music history and cause quite a stir for one Billie Holiday. It's January 1939. Billie has agreed to sing Maripol's song as her closer at Cafe Society in Greenwich Village, but backstage, she's having second thoughts. 23 years old at the time, she's already toured with jazz greats and dazzled audiences. Her voice and stage presence is something to be reckoned with. It's only been a few days since she was first introduced to the song. It immediately struck a chord with her. She didn't care about the rumors that Abel Maripol was a communist and that singing this song could end her career, though it could very likely do so. It was the kind of song that could make record producers tear up contracts and leave careers in ashes. But even more frightful than the potential destruction of her career was the fact that it was the kind of song that could bring the police knocking on your door. Minutes before walking out on stage, she tells the owner of the club that she's changed her mind and is dropping the last song. The owner, Barney Josephson, the man who introduced the song to Holiday, tells her that it would be a great mistake not to sing it. She knows that he's right. Thinking about her father, Billy decides that whether a mistake or not, she will not let fear hold her back. The audience needs to hear the song as much as she needs to sing it. Welcome to House of Words, a podcast about writers, revolutionaries, and the persecuted. I am your host, Jason Nemour Hardin, and on this episode, we're taking a look at the poem by Abel Maripol that would go on to become one of Billie Holiday's most famous songs. This is the story of Strange Fruit. Southern trees bear a strange fruit, blood on the leaves and blood at the root, black bodies swinging in the southern breeze, strange fruit hanging from the poplar trees, an excerpt from Strange Fruit by Abel Maripol. Abel Maripol was born in the Bronx in 1903, where he would grow up and would spend most of his life. As a child, he loved animals, having a pet dog of his own named Sporty. Always disgusted by violence, he would use his dog to stay away from physical altercations. When a kid wanted to fight him, Abel would tell him that he had to take his dog home first. He would then leave and not return. Thus, his dog was a steady companion and always by his side. 
At DeWitt Clinton High School, Abel would develop his love for writing and was soon writing for the school newspaper and its literary magazine. In his time there, he would even write the school anthem. This love for writing would grow stronger and he would continue to dedicate himself at New York's City College, becoming the editor-in-chief of its literary magazine. He would then go on to complete a master's degree in English literature at Harvard in 1926, but lacked the necessary funds to enter their Ph.D. program. Coming from a left-wing, labor-oriented family, he worked as the artistic director at Camp Unity, a communist-run adult summer resort in the late 1920s. There, he met Anne Schaefer, whom he married in 1929. Both would become teachers, Abel teaching English at DeWitt Clinton, where notably future writer and activist James Baldwin, as well as future poet County Cullen, were among his students. Both Abel and Anne were artistically inclined. He would continue to write poems while working as a teacher, while Anne explored acting and singing alongside her teaching job. It was in the 1930s that Abel would see the photograph that would motivate him to write the poem that would change the career of one Eleonora Fagan, better known as Billie Holiday. Born Eleonora Fagan on April 7, 1915 in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, she would have a difficult start to her life. Her parents, 19-year-old Sarah Julia Fagan and 16-year-old Clarence Halliday, were still teenagers and unwed when Eleonora, Billy, came into the world. Growing up in Baltimore, Eleonora's mother often took what were then known as transportation jobs, serving on passenger railroads, while her father was a touring musician. As a consequence, Eleonora was raised by others for the first decade of her life and suffered from the absence of both her parents. After attending kindergarten at St. Francis Academy, she would frequently skip school. This tendency resulted in her being brought before the juvenile court on January 5, 1925, when she was just nine years old. She was then sent to the house of the Good Shepherd, a Catholic reform school, as punishment. After nine months in care, she was paroled on October 3, 1925, to her mother, now, her mother had by that time opened a restaurant, the East Side Grill, and they would work long hours there. Eventually, Eleonora would drop out of school at the age of 11. Now, as a young teenager, she began singing in nightclubs in Harlem. She took her professional pseudonym from Billy Dove, an actress she admired, and Clarence Halliday, her father. Billy would later mention how she didn't miss a single picture Billy Dove was a part of. She was an absolute fan, tried to do her hair like her, and eventually even borrowed her name. At the outset of her career, she spelled her last name Halliday, H-A-L-L-I-D-A-Y, just like her father's surname, but eventually changed it to Holiday, H-O-L-I-D-A-Y, which was her father's performing name as well. Quote, if I'm going to sing like someone else, then I don't need to sing at all. Billie Holiday. The words that would eventually make up the lyrics to Strange Fruit started out as a poem entitled Bitter Fruit. 
Abel Maripol wrote it after seeing the now-famous Lawrence Beitler photograph of the lynching of Thomas Shipp and Abram Smith, taken on August 7, 1930. The photograph is gruesome as it depicts a crowd of white men and women displaying various states of fascination, satisfaction, smugness, and glee as they pose to the camera. Above them, hanging from the branch of a large tree, are the bloodied bodies of two young colored men. Ship and Smith, the two bodies hanging from the tree in the photo, were arrested on the suspicion of robbery, rape, and murder. The crowd was, however, unwilling to wait for justice to be served. Ship and Smith were taken from jail, beaten and hanged from a tree in the county courthouse square until they were dead. Photographer Lawrence Beitler, realizing that his photograph was a historic one, spent the better part of the next ten days selling thousands of copies of the photo, one of which reached Maripol in the Bronx. Bitter Fruit was first published in the January 1937 edition of The New York Teacher, a union magazine of the Teachers' Union. As equal rights movements grew stronger and protests began to spark up in different ends of the United States, Maripol set music to the lyrics with help from his wife Anne and singer Laura Duncan. The song would go on to be performed as a protest song in various New York City venues in the late 1930s, including Madison Square Garden. Abel Maripol knew that he would run into more trouble than he wanted if he published it under his own name. Being from a Jewish left-wing family and having some affiliations with the Communist Party, he opted to go with the pseudonym Lewis Allen. Back to Billy, she was steadily reaching new peaks of fame, selling thousands of albums and performing regularly on stage, which for her was the only place she truly felt at home. Being famous, however, did nothing to help her avoid the impact of discrimination against people of color in the country that was supposedly hers, but felt anything but. Two years before she was introduced to the song that would bring her even more fame and troubles, she received notice that her father had died. The circumstances surrounding his death were painful to take in and near impossible to accept. Curtis Halliday, a military veteran, had been exposed to mustard gas while serving in World War I. He recovered but his lungs were debilitated by the occurrence. While on tour in Texas in 1937, he fell ill with a lung disorder, but was refused treatment at a local hospital on account of the color of his skin. When he finally managed to get treatment, he was only allowed in the Jim Crow ward of the Veterans Hospital, and by then, pneumonia had set in. Without antibiotics, Curtis Halliday would succumb to the illness and was found dead the next morning. In 1939, Billy was often playing at the Café Society in Greenwich Village in New York. As the first racially integrated nightclub in New York, it was often referred to be the right place for the wrong people. Barney Josephson, the owner of the spot, had heard Bitterfruit and thought the song would be perfect for Billy, and he was right. It reminded her of her father, and of course it brought up images of the injustice that was occurring on a daily basis in the country. In 1939, lynchings were not out of the ordinary. She knew that many would not like what she was singing about and that it might be dangerous doing so. 
Racists and bigots were one thing, but what she was really worried about was the police and the FBI. The first time Billy performs the song is one evening in January of 1939. All service was stopped while she sang so that there would be silence. When she finished, the stage lights were extinguished for dramatic effect. According to reports, the audience was so stunned that no one made a sound. Then one person started clapping, which soon evolved into a standing ovation. A few weeks after first performing the song, she approached her record label Columbia about recording it. However, the company feared reaction by record retailers in the South as well as negative reaction from affiliates of its co-owned radio network, CBS. When her producer, John Hammond, also refused to record the song, Billy turned to her friend, Milt Gabler, owner of the Commodore label. She sang Strange Fruit for him a cappella, and it moved him to tears. Columbia, apparently realizing that it was important to their artist, gave Billy a one-session release from a contract so she could record at the Commodore label. Milt Gabler worked out a special arrangement with Vocalion Records to record and distribute the song, and the recording was done on April 20, 1939. Using Frankie Newton's eight-piece Cafe Society band for the session, Gabler worried the song was too short, asked pianist Sonny White to improvise an introduction, which is why there's 70 seconds before Holiday starts to sing. The song was highly regarded, with the 1939 recording eventually going on to sell a million copies and thus became Billie Holiday's biggest selling recording. As the song grew in popularity, so grew the hatred of it, in particular from one man, the head of the Federal Bureau of Narcotics, Harry Anslinger. By 1946, Billy had ignored threats, warnings, and direct orders to stop singing the song for six years running. She continued to sing it on stage, taking as much pride in it as she ever did. This was infuriating to Harry Anslinger, who deemed the lyrics vile and provocative with the potential to rile up black Americans and cause them to question the order of the nation. Because of this, Harry Anslinger was willing to go to great lengths to silence Billie Holiday. In the spring of 1946, Anslinger assigns one of his colored narcotics agents, Jimmy Fletcher, to go undercover and befriend the singer. With Billie, already a drug user, Anslinger figured it would be easy to take her down when the time was right. He just needed Fletcher to inform him when that time had arrived. Fletcher tells Anslinger that it's just a song, implying that all this effort could be better spent on someone else, but Anslinger wasn't having any of that. He informed his officer that he had told Holiday to stop singing the song. He even personally confronted her in one of her filthy little club performances and ordered her to stop. She refused, disobeyed a federal agent, and for that there had to be repercussions. In addition to this, her drug use made her immoral, and immoral people must be stopped. Fletcher, also vehemently against drugs, agrees with the logic and takes the assignment. Billy struggles with being looked down upon as a woman, and even more so 
as a black woman, to deal with this as well as a way to repress the bad memories of her youth, she smokes and drinks quite a bit and occasionally shoots up heroin and snorts cocaine. She knows that she could be earning more money and getting treated better than she is at the moment, but that would mean she would have to stop singing Strange Fruit, something she's unwilling to do. Consequently, as stress levels increase, she finds herself turning more and more to heroin, which is a bad combination when she, unbeknownst to her, has befriended a narcotics officer. She dreams about leading a good life someday, a life where she can sing whatever she wants to without having to worry about being harassed. But that's in the future, she hopes. On May 15, 1947, Jimmy Fletcher met up with Holiday in a brothel. They talked for a moment and then agreed to go catch a movie. But as they were about to leave, Fletcher noticed that Holiday filled a vial with some white powder. Fletcher recognized the white powder to be cocaine, and he also knew that the white powder would most likely still be in her purse when they got to her apartment later. Next morning, while eating cereal and reading a comic book, there was a knock on her door. She opens the door to find Jimmy Fletcher standing there, but he's dressed differently than she's used to. He's wearing a navy jacket and tie. It doesn't take long before she understands that her friend is not a friend at all, and then he reveals himself to be a special agent with the Bureau of Narcotics. Soon, another agent is in her apartment. This one Caucasian, he immediately starts making a mess, pulling out drawers and spreading its contents on the floor. Fletcher tells the other agent that there's no need to do that, that he knows that the drugs are in her purse. In response, the other agent is quick to tell him to shut up and not tell him how he should do his job. Fletcher tells Holiday that they will have to strip search her, but that he's arranged it so a female agent can do it. Holiday is disgusted and not about to let Fletcher get away with his betrayal. She tells him that there's no need to wait for the female agent to arrive and starts getting undressed in front of him. Moments later, police sirens appear, and as the sirens grow louder, she decided that she would never stop singing Strange Fruit. The deceit, as well as the obvious danger she presented, let her know that she had to embrace the most powerful weapon she had, her voice, and use it to its full potential. A day later, she was released on bail, and that very evening was back on stage at Club Ebony in New York. Ebony was one of her favorite places to sing and somewhere she felt at home. She can't count how many fans have thanked her and told her how grateful they are to have their voices heard. This only serves to reinforce what she already knows, that she needs to keep singing the song, Consequences Be Damned. After the gig at the Ebony, Fletcher approached her, telling her how he regretted what he did and that he wanted to help. Unwilling to stop singing Strange Fruit, she hoped that with Fletcher somewhat on her side, the law would at least ease up a little. Harry Anslinger, unfortunately, was not about to give up his witch hunt. He was determined to take her down and have her go to jail for a very long time. A short time after being arrested on account of befriending Jimmy Fletcher, Billy, feeling low about the whole situation, was surprised when her ex-boyfriend, Louis McKay, reached out to her, seemingly out of the blue. 
he begged her to take him back, telling her he was a changed man. She was feeling low and in need of comfort, and against her better judgment, invited him over to her apartment. McKay served a few drinks and planted drugs around the apartment while she wasn't looking. He then gave her a joint and proceeded to make a phone call. Ten minutes later, there were four police officers in the apartment prompting her to realize she'd been set up. Pleading guilty in hopes of receiving a lighter sentence, she told the judge that she wanted to get better, that she really wanted to kick the drugs, but needed help to accomplish that. She hoped that he, the judge, could send her for treatment instead of jail. The judge mulled it over for a few moments before informing her that she would have to get treatment at the prison hospital and sentenced her to one year and one day in prison. Quote, I wrote strange fruit because I hate lynching and I hate injustice and I hate the people who perpetrate it. Abel Maripol. Strange Fruit caused a sensation and would become the composition that Abel Maripol was most proud of, but one that he never lived with easily. Within a year of Billy's first performance, Abel was called before New York State's Rap Kudert Committee, a legislative commission attempting to root out communist teachers. He was asked if the Communist Party had commissioned him to write the song, something he denied. Nevertheless, he left teaching to avoid being fired for his politics and went to Hollywood to pursue writing full-time. In 1944, he wrote his other famous song, The House I Live In, which, the following year, Frank Sinatra performed in a short film. The short film won an Academy Award in 1946. Abel and Anne attended a screening of the film at a local theater, but it was far from a pleasurable experience. When he realized his anti-segregation verse had been cut from the film, he was naturally furious. He started yelling, Shit! Shit! They ruined my song! And in the end, he was physically ejected from the theater. He decided to return to New York City after the incident. However, he was now atop the Hollywood blacklist of alleged communists as he explored his writing possibilities within television. Strange Fruit's rebirth was slow at first, but when it began rolling again, it did so with a newfound energy. The artist Sting performed it on an album celebrating Amnesty International's 25th anniversary in 1986, and the punk group Susie and the Banshees followed suit the next year. Cassandra Wilson introduced Strange Fruit to a new generation in her widely acclaimed debut album in 1995, and in the year 2000, Time magazine named it the Song of the Century. Abel Maripol died in 1986, but the potency and poignancy of his words still reverberate to this day, however fortunate or unfortunate that may be. January 1949, a year and a half since she had been sentenced, Billy was out, clean, and sober. When released from prison, she went straight and hard back to the bottle. As a consequence of her incarceration, she lost her cabaret card, which meant she wasn't allowed to perform at any venue that served alcohol. 
It seemed to be a sure career killer, and she therefore embraced the only drug that wouldn't send her back to jail, alcohol. Then came good news when a friend told her that San Francisco didn't have a law about having to have a cabaret license in order to perform. She immediately left New York for California, where she continued to sing Strange Fruit and was hailed, receiving standing ovations on a nightly basis. Sober and clean in San Francisco, she felt like she was glowing, and by staying clean, it seemed like there was nothing that the Federal Bureau of Narcotics could do. She felt unstoppable. Unfortunately, Harry Ann Slinger was not about to let a simple little thing such as Holiday's discipline to stop doing drugs stop him. The Federal Bureau of Narcotics followed her to San Francisco and arrested her after they planted drugs in her hotel room. As she was being apprehended, the arresting agent told Billy that Anslinger sent his regards. Ten years later, in 1959, she woke up on a sickbed in the public ward of the Metropolitan Hospital in New York. She was brought there a few days earlier after she collapsed at a friend's house. For years, she stood up for black Americans and the injustices committed against them, and because of this, the Federal Bureau of Narcotics continued to come after her. After more than a decade of being chased and harassed, not to mention the damage she had done to her body with the drugs and alcohol, she was feeling the consequences. Her liver was worse on account of alcohol abuse, her heart was strained, her lungs were blackened by cigarettes, and her legs had ulcers on them from the junk she had been shooting up. In the ten years that had passed, she had come to accept the fact that the Bureau wasn't about to give up on her and decided, therefore, to enjoy herself in the process. To a friend who came to visit her at the hospital, she said, I guess I enjoyed myself a little too much, though she did have a smile on her face at the time. Later that week, she was arrested in the hospital. This time, narcotics agents claimed that they had found heroin in a tinfoil envelope nailed to the wall. This wall in question was six feet from the base of her bed and was therefore located in an area that she was incapable of reaching due to her body's lack of mobility at the time. Nevertheless, she was indicted and was handcuffed to the hospital bed. She would remain in the hospital until her death on July 17, 1959. She was 44 years old and had only $700 to her name. Now, reportedly, Harry Anslinger rejoiced when he heard the news of her passing. And despite having received reports that several white entertainers used heroin and other drugs, Anslinger refused to prosecute any of them and only went for entertainers of color throughout his career, a fact that should be firmly burned into his legacy. Abel Maripol used quite a few of the human senses in his poem, from the sound of the black body swinging in the southern breeze and blood landing on leaves, to the vision of the bulging eyes and twisted mouth, to the scent of magnolia, sweet and fresh, then the sudden smell of burning flesh. Maripol created a deeply important and poignant piece of writing. With help from Billie Holiday, the lyrics gained many more impactful traits through her numerous performances. 
In stark contrast to many other famous protest songs that came later, Strange Fruit is solemn and calm. Some of the later songs have a pace and momentum which helps you imagine the forward movement of progress. Or there are great musical swells that invoke waves that shake the walls of oppression. Not so with Strange Fruit. Sung slowly and painfully, Billy lingers over words, making the images of blood on leaves, of bodies swinging from ropes, also linger. Strange fruit forces you to stand still and witness the atrocity before you, and then invokes you to get up and start marching. Billie Holiday's version was inducted into the Grammy Hall of Fame in 1978. It was also included in the Songs of the Century list of the Recording Industry of America and the National Endowment for the Arts. In 2002, Strange Fruit was selected for preservation in the National Recording Registry by the Library of Congress as being culturally, historically, or aesthetically significant. As usual, I will leave you with one final quote. People don't understand the kind of fight it takes to record what you want to record the way you want to record it. Billy Holiday. Thank you for listening. I hope you've enjoyed this episode and will spread the word about the podcast. Once again, I have been your host, Jason Nemoa Harden. We at House of Words ask that you please consider helping to make this show easier to produce and more frequent by contributing on our Patreon page at patreon.com slash houseofwords or paypal.me houseofwordspodcast. Alternatively, you can head over to subscribe and encourage others to subscribe to our YouTube page, House of Words Podcast. Every little bit helps more than you think. Until next time, keep turning those pages. House of Words is written and produced by Crystal M. Sanchez. Narrated and written by me, Jason Nemoa Harden. And music by Creature Nine and Wood. All rights and ownership belong to Crystal M. Sanchez and Jason Nemoa Harden.